I think every song ends with, I hope you make it. It's such a hopeful and loving idea that, and an, and an acknowledgement that, you know, life is hard, but yeah. just in general, right? So yeah. We're in this together. I like that a lot. So, Bob Dylan turns 80 today, May 24th, and uh, since we've both loved Bob Dylan for a long time, I thought we could chat about him for a few minutes. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature in what year? Oh, are you already with, already with the quiz questions? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> a few years ago. You should know this. Within I, our marriage, yeah, so I, I think know. three or four years ago. If. 2017, I think. And um, yeah, we've been listening to him for a long time. Do you remember the first time I... Showed you one of his songs. This was I remember so way back vividly, in the day. so vividly. That was the okay. So the first time you showed me um, a song of his was the first time I had consciously listened to Bob Dylan. Of course, uh, yeah, you can't get away uh, from him, right? As I look back, I realized you know back in Germany and like I don't know sixth grade, I was learning how to play uh, <laughs> "Blowing in the Wind" on the recorder. <laughs> yeah, good good song for the recorder. <laughs> it's a good song. Um, and you know, back then I just thought of it as some kind of, uh, I don't know, him almost. I didn't think of it as, uh, you know, written by a person. Yeah. Who was um, alive at the same time you were. Right. But yes, I remember the first time you showed me a song of his, you asked me, do you like Bob Dylan? And I was like, oh, actually, I don't know. This is why we which, were dating. Which this seems crazy. Make or break question. It seems crazy that I wasn't really aware of him. I mean, of course I knew the name. Everybody does. Yeah. But I'm like, uh, no, not really. And you're like, wow, that's <laughs> crazy. Can I show you one of his songs? I'm like, okay. So we were actually um, headed to Oregon. It was all extremely romantic. <laughs> this was our first road trip together. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, there's no better way to listen to Bob Dylan for the first time than on a road trip with somebody you like headed to Oregon. It's pretty ideal. But anyway, we could get into that later. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he, he turned on Ramona, which I thought was an interesting choice. And looking back, I don't even think that's one of your favorites by him, is it? Well... Yeah. Or it, was it just a no, song you happened to have? In no, it the is car? one of my favorites for sure. But thing, I have like 50 favorites, 100 favorites. It's impossible to narrow yeah, down. So. That's right. But it's a gorgeous song. You know, those. Oh, yeah. Your cracked country lips, I still wish to kiss. Oh, yeah. Has to be by the strength of your skin, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's really, really beautiful. <laughs> oh, it, it was so beautiful. It hit me immediately. And, and I remember you even said, ah, oh, his voice is either kind of a love or hate sort of situation. But I loved it immediately. It had the most wonderful rough edge to it that, that did everything for that love song. There's some Emerson quotes that I want to read and talk about Bob Dylan in the context of. Because it's going to be hard without a kind of scaffolding to talk about a musician. And I do want to define him as a musician. I'm not one of those people who thinks that labels matter. You know, is he a poet? Did he deserve the Nobel Prize? Is he a songwriter? Oh, it doesn't really matter to me. I, I think it is interesting that I never read him. I mm -hmm. think that's a telling detail. He's, right. he's not an artist whose work you read. You listen to the songs. You don't read the lyrics. Right. As There's, beautiful as the lyrics are. They've all been published in beautiful, big books. Um, but I've never been really tempted to buy it. Yeah. Until I kind of started writing my own songs, I never really wanted to look into it. And whenever you find yourself reading the lyrics, you're humming them. Exactly, so they're, yeah. They're un, 
they're undetachable from the melodies from the music. Yes. And Dylan himself even, is it in the Nobel Prize lecture where he says, I'm a songwriter, I write songs. What does he say exactly? He says, our songs are alive in the land of the living, but songs are unlike literature. They're meant to be sung, not read. The words in Shakespeare's plays were meant to be acted on the stage, just as lyrics and songs are meant to be sung, not read on a page. And I hope some of you get the chance to listen to these lyrics the way they were intended to be heard, in concert or on record, or however people are listening to people are listening to songs these days. I return once again to Homer, who says, "Sing in me, O muse, and through me tell the story." So was, he yeah. he himself he he encourages you to listen to these as songs as as they were meant. Right. He's he's doing something fundamentally different from what Frost and Dickinson and Whitman and Shakespeare are doing. Yes. It's quite a different art form. You know, on the surface, song lyrics and poems look like they're subspecies of the same creature. But I suspect they're not. I suspect they're not even related at all. You know, sometimes in nature you'll find these, like, two marsupial-like things that look like they should be related, but you find out they're, they branch off way, 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 way back and have nothing at all in common. I kind of think that's the same thing with song lyrics and poetry. I know people listening are thinking, no, 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 wait, Homer was sung. Yes, Homer was sung. Sappho poems were sung. The Psalms were sung to musical accompaniment. And the etymology of lyric means... Lyric means lyre, yeah. So lyric poetry, yeah. Um, So yeah, I mean, they have like this animal metaphor. They do have a common ancestor, but I think this ancestor is ancient. And I think that as soon as poems were written down... This is certainly post-Gutenberg, but before this even. You know, Virgil wasn't singing the Aeneid. He was he was reading it. It was being read. Horace poems were being read. You know, this is at least several, a few thousand years, two thousand years, poems, poems started to be read. Mm. I think as, as soon as poems started to be read and not sung, their evolution went on an entirely different track. Mm-hmm. This is my theory. So how would you describe the relationship? I mean, sometimes I have... Students, poetry students in my classes who logically assume that since they listen to a lot of music and have a lot of, you know, listen to a lot of great lyricists, that this has given them a head start. Mm-hmm. I think it's given them more harm. It's done them more harm than good mm-hmm. when it comes to writing poetry. Right. I often find like I have to encourage them to unlearn certain lessons they've learned as lyricists when they write poems for the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. songs and poems look the same and rhyme the same, but they. <laughs> Are not the same. So, in what in what way are not they not the same? How are the, why are they different? Why am I saying they're different? You agree. You seem to agree. Yes, I agree strongly. So why? Well, <laughs> I feel like I've brought this up a few times, but I'm not saying this to glorify myself. <laughs> I I have been writing songs for a while. <laughs> yeah. But ever since I started writing songs, and I you know wrote poetry for a long time before that, I have really, really come to understand more deeply that songs and poems are very different because in the beginning, I tried to even take some of the poems I already had, set them to music, but I realized quickly that no, with music, the music makes the meaning and not the words. And it doesn't... What do you mean by that? The music is what has, what is in the forefront and what is yeah. creating um, feelings and evoking things. And it it almost doesn't matter what the words are. Yeah. In fact, words can get in the way of I think the you're music. Right. By meaning, you don't mean 
dictionary definitions, you mean ex- ex- experience, something like this, right? The, me- yes. the music is creating the experience. Why The reason the song is meaningful is because of the music. Yes, the music creates the mood. It sets the tone. It evokes feelings and images in you that are seemingly completely almost independent of the words. I mean, there are many Bob Dylan. Dylan is a great person through whom to make this point, actually, because there are many Dylan songs whose lyrics, because of his singing style, are incomprehensible. (laughs) Songs I've listened to for many years, and then I finally want to kind of try to strum on the guitar. And so I look up the chords and they come with lyrics. I'm like, oh, five years later, after hearing the song 10,000 times, I think, oh, that's what he's been saying this whole time. (laughs) It's a total afterthought. Uh huh. Yeah. A total right. afterthought. It's so true. And sometimes I think, oh, that's nice. That's a nicer line than I thought it would be. But it's more or less irrelevant. Uh huh. And now, I mean, Mr. Tambourine Man, and you know, I don't know, um, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, and maybe Idiot Wind, or you know, some of my favorite songs. The lyrics do matter. Probably an overstatement to say that they don't matter. They do make the song more beautiful, but. In, this, in the way that frosting makes a cake better. You know what I mean? It's, right, it's they, not the, the heart of the n- thing. Right. The music is always the king. <laughs> always. I think so. Um, so would I be right to assume, I've never tried to write a song, but would I be right to assume that as a lyricist, as a writer of song lyrics, you can get away with more? Oh, yes. There are less. It matters less. Yes. So you're suddenly allowed, I'm making assumptions here. You're suddenly allowed all these cliches. Yes, You're absolutely. suddenly allowed way more sentimentality. Yes. <laughs> you, can, you can be boring for long stretches without it uh-huh. mattering. Yep, exactly. And you can get, if you have the right music to go with it, you can get away with uh, things that in a poem, they would be absolutely horrendous. With the right music, it can, I mean, it makes all the difference. I often... I try to make this point in class, and I use the Stevie Wonder song, Isn't She Lovely? Yeah. <laughs> written, written to the birth of his daughter, I think it's a wonderful song, a really wonderful song. The lyrics, Isn't She Lovely? Yeah. Isn't She Wonderful? Yeah. You, know, you can't do that in a poem. No. He an, brings to it this exuberance. It's all in the voice and the music and the... Yeah. It even the kind of like naive, unabashed simpleness and sentimentality of those lyrics, yes. even in a song, improve the song. Yeah. You know, they're a plus in a song, whereas in a poem, they're a total minus. Yeah. It's it's really like exhilarating to be able to say things in a song that I could never put in a poem. You know, like something like hold my hand. Yeah. <laughs> you would never put that in a poem. Yeah, you wouldn't. But you can make it beautiful I mean, and sound never, deep in a know, song. <laughs> great poets come along and yes. defy all the rules. And yeah, great poets could yes. say that in a poem. But, you know, in general, you're absolutely right. I mean, some of the so- things Bob Dylan says, you know, um, with the combination of his sad, like, pre, pre-aged voice, <laughs> there's this tragedy, right? You can feel oh, yeah. the, you know, time slipping away. You know, like the song I really like, Precious Angel. Precious Angel under the sun, how was I to know you'd be the one to show me I was blinded, to show me I was gone? Mm-hmm. More shine, and then the chorus, shine your light, shine your light on me, shine your light, shine your light on me. Mm-hmm. Shine your light, shine your light on me. You know, I just couldn't make it by myself. I'm a little too blind to see. This is not a poem. No. Uh, but it's not trying to be a poem. Right. Yes. Um, and I could imagine as... You know, for him as a 
as a musician, it's kind of a terrifying thought that people would try to sit down and just read the songs. That's like I was saying mm. earlier. It's like looking at paintings in black and white that are meant to be in color. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I mean, his lyrics are beautiful. They are. But we're not going to spend any time reading them or describing. I mean, we might quote a snippet or two, you know, um, as they come up. And we might point to literary figures whom he has clearly been inspired by or stolen things from. Mm-hmm. Um, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall is a rewrite of this anonymous old English ballad called Lord Randall, for example. And I've always, my favorite Bob Dylan song is Mr. Tambourine Man, and I've always viewed it as a version of Oh to a Nightingale. Mm-hmm. It has the same kind of dreamlike, uh, I'll follow you. He, he's, he's talking to a person, a thing, an entity that makes music and is wanting to f- kind of catch this ineffable music maker and, and follow it into the fog, into, the, into this dreamland. Mm-hmm. And he's always quoting, you know, poets, but that's kind of, to me, beside the point. Shakespeare is a kind of a running joke in our marriage that Shakespeare has ruined everything other, for everything. other, <laughs> other authors for me. So I'm always, you know, except for Homer, maybe Homer is maybe the only person I can read and not say, well, it's not as good as Shakespeare. It's so frustrating. I'll introduce a new writer or something or read a line or something to to you and you're like, well, it's not Shakespeare. Well, I have to be, I'm, I'm saying that mostly as a joke. There is a grain of truth to it, of course. I mean, obviously there are many, many great writers and I don't want to suggest that Shakespeare is sufficient. I want as many great writers in the world as possible and I'm constantly reading new people. But, um, you know, I'm always thinking, well, this is good. This is a good book or this is even a great book. But Shakespeare is the high watermark. You know, he set the high jump bar mm-hmm. at a certain level. And it doesn't matter how long ago it was. <laughs> no, no, not at all. That's irrelevant. And if we jump out of the literature box and jump into the music box, talking about a totally different art form now, Dylan to me, at least, I mean, okay, you know, there's there's Mozart and Bach and Beethoven. But at least when we're talking about contemporary musicians, 20th century music, Dylan is the Shakespeare equivalent. He's, he has ruined 20th century music for me. Uh, yeah. I can't listen to anyone else be, with as much <laughs> excitement. Right. No one else is as inexhaustible or surprising or beautiful or... I know. it's. I trust him completely. You know what I mean? And that's not to say that he, he doesn't have bad songs. Of course he does. You know, and Shakespeare has really boring moments and... It's not a matter of perfection. So what I thought I would do is um, read few, read through a few of these quotes from Emerson. Emerson has this book called Representative Men in which he talks about certain pinnacles of achievement across certain human domains. So he has, for example, chapters. He has chapters on Plato or the philosopher, Swedenborg or the mystic, Montaigne or the skeptic, Shakespeare or the poet, Napoleon or the man of the world, kind of using one, one person to define these different modes of being in the world. And I was reading this recently and seeing in the news that it was Bob Dylan's birthday and thought, yeah, this is very, very interesting. So I'm going to read these and get your take. And we kind of chat about these. This is how Emerson's essay on Shakespeare or the poet starts. Great men are more distinguished by range and extent than by originality. Think about that. Range and extent as opposed to originality. If we require the originality, which consists in weaving... Like a spider, their web from their own bowels. In finding clay and making bricks and building the house, no great men are original. Nor does valuable originality consist in unlikeness to other men. The greatest genius is the most indebted man. Mm-hmm. So I thought we could pause there and talk about Dylan's indebtedness and his... This is a very... Emerson is presenting us with a quite, quite a strange definition of originality. That's an amazing line. It's great, isn't it? 
It's amazing. Why? Not only does it come up with this great definition for a great artist by saying that uh, other great artists draw on other artists, but it also, I love the idea of debt. You know what I mean? That you you owe a sort of debt to the people that you're influenced by. Yeah. And I love this comment about range and extent. I mean, who has a greater range than Shakespeare? Yeah. And who has a greater range in the in the realm of songwriting these days than Dylan? I mean, Dylan I know, has there's... written every conceivable type of, I don't even want to say pop song, because he has, he's done them all. I know. And I love that um, when he started out writing a lot of folk music, he had all these, uh, you know, people that he was making music with and hanging out with were so loyal to the folk music movement. And he, mm-hmm. when he was ready to make something else, he just did. And went against the grain famously. He, was yes, very against the grain. Mocked and derided. And yes, it was a very big deal. Attacked even. Yes. Physically. But even before that, you know, before he made a name for himself, I know that he was... You know, he idolized Woody Guthrie, and he decided that he would kind of become Woody Guthrie. He would dress like Woody Guthrie. Right. He would try to sing like Woody Guthrie. He would hold his guitar in the same ways that he would see Woody Guthrie hold his guitar. Mm-hmm. So the way that a genius becomes a genius is... Um, Not by saying, com- I'm independent of these great people, and I can do this on my own, but rather I... I'm going to be owing all of my future greatness to them. (laughs) Let me keep reading Emerson here. He says, great genial power, so the power of geniuses, great genial power, one would almost say, consists in not being original at all, in being altogether receptive, in letting the world do all, and suffering the spirit of the hour to pass unobstructed through the mind. Quite like that, too. There's a kind of, you can imagine Shakespeare, this is Emerson's hypothesis, I think he's onto something. It's not that Shakespeare was born with a new ingredient that the world had never seen. Rather, he's the kind of person that sits back in his chair and observes and watches and looks. Receptive is Emerson's word. He's receptive. He's more receptive than anyone Mm -hmm. and soaks it all in like a sponge and can get more of the world into himself, more of other authors into himself than anyone else can. Mm -hmm. Dylan, likewise, I think, has absorbed, has has received um, more about music you know, from Woody Guthrie to rock and roll to gospel music to uh, the, the American Songbook, you know, Sinatra, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really think this idea of origin- originality is really only an issue to very young young writers or musicians, artists, than I would say more experienced ones. Don't you agree? I mean, you learn pretty early on that there is very little value in actual originality. I mean, originality doesn't equal yep. in any way quality. Yeah, Northrop Fry, the Canadian critic, has this great line in which he he claims that the truly original in literature or in any art form, I think, would be unrecognizable. I think his word is a monstrosity. <laughs> yeah. You know, when a child is born, we praise it. We call it unique, and it, that's true, mm-hmm. but only insofar as it fits a certain mold. You know, it doesn't have wings and a tail, for example. Yeah. It, in- it, it has... You know, four arms. If it's a healthy baby, it has four arms, four legs. It was fitting an established pattern. And we don't... When someone is pregnant, she is not hoping for something truly original. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like a liger or something. She, she wants it to be a human child. And I think the art... I think this metaphor is totally analogous to art. Oh, yeah. We want it to be slightly new, but 
You want to see your loved ones in that child. Yeah, that's great. You want to see your loved ones. You want to see its lineage and it shining yeah. in its face. Yeah, that's good. I Lack of originality to me doesn't mean lack of voice, unique voice. Because I do think he does. he takes something familiar and he adds his own, uh, let's call it special sauce. He'll take, he's even said this in an interview, he will take an odd line, a familiar line, either from a, from an old song or a saying, and he will spin it a little bit so that it catches people. You know, first of all, you it draws you in with familiarity, and then he kind of makes it his own by talking about him as a lyricist? changing it a bit. Yes. So, well, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall of. is a good example. You know, if you go read Lord Randall, the ballad, he stole the framework, the structure, the type of refrain, this back and forth, where have you been? Randall, my son. He takes the word Randall out. Dylan does. Mm -hmm. um, but Dylan adds all of this kind of... Contemporary American images. Yeah, but they're also kind of timeless. But he adds, he, he, he puts them on steroids, you know, like um, a room full of men, their hammers of... Bleeding. Bleeding and... Bleeding. <laughs> a, you know, um, I saw... A highway of diamonds with nobody on it. A highway of diamonds, you know what I mean? It's just like... Um, I've always wondered, is it the actual diamonds, the white lines on it? Or or is it uh, just more poetic? <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. This is the first couple stanzas of Lord Randall. Where have you been, Lord Randall, my son? Oh, where have you been, my handsome young man? I have been to the wild wood, mother. Make my bed soon, for I am weary with hunting and fain would lie down. Where gat ye your dinner, Lord Randall, my son? Where gat ye your dinner, my handsome young man? I dined with my true love, mother. Make my bed soon, for I am weary with hunting and fain would lie down. Etc. And there are a few more questions, but, you know, so Dylan, it's clearly the same type of poem. Mm -hmm. Dylan takes this and explodes it with lyrical and makes, brilliance. Right, and, and adds his own own language to it. Where have you been, my darling young one? But all those lyrics, like, I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it. Mm -hmm. I yeah, saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping, you know. Yeah, 100 drummers whose hands were ablazing. I especially love the ending of this song with the... Um, Oh, yeah. I know my song well before I'll start singing. Yes. I love where black is the color, where none is the number. It's one thing I, you know, you quickly notice when you start listening to Dylan is that he doesn't care how long a song should be. Yes. He'll just sing and for as long as he wants. And I often think his songs are too long. I think, okay, I get it. <laughs> but this is, you know, he's kind of unwavering. I think this is a mark also of genius. Like, you do what you want to do. And yeah. you don't care. And I've even heard him talk about that, too. He doesn't think about how long songs are when he's writing them. And that's because he's truly in the song. He's not sitting there, okay, it needs to be this long so I can sell it, so it will be popular. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's just an obvious, like, sign right here that he is really just writing the thing he wants to and trying to make it exactly what it needs to be. Yeah, my favorite example of him going his own way is that in 1969, uh, Woodstock, he lived really close to Woodstock, could have gone and performed, but chose to record Nashville Skyline, this country album, country music, you know, when this the biggest rock and roll fest of the century was happening just up the road. He didn't really care. He didn't feel like he needed to be a part of the group or the herd and recorded an album that he knew wouldn't be that popular, you know, just to do his own thing. And um, this has spanned his career. I mean, it, 
a semi-recent album, The Tempests, that came out in something like 2012 or something. He has this song, Roll on John, which is kind of sampling of poems and other songs. You know, the lyrics are, I heard the news today, oh boy. Just got to be a Beatles line. Slow down, you're moving way too fast from Simon and Garfunkel. Come together right now over me. Tiger, tiger, burning bright, you know, in the forest of the night. So it's just kind of this, I think Emerson is onto something. For the genius artist, everything is material. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because and he or she is the most receptive person. And he has that gorgeous song on his latest album, um, I Contain Multitudes. Yeah. It is, it's such a beautiful song, and he, it seems to be almost a kind of Ars Poetica, right? Yeah. If you want to call it that, where he's really just laying out his entire philosophy on art. Well, this is songs. Emerson's word range, and that's the theme of this song. You know, mm-hmm. I do it all. You know, I do A, and I do the opposite of A. Mm-hmm. And ironically, he's using he's quoting Whitman to describe himself. Yeah. I contain multitudes, so he has no qualms about you know, he doesn't hide his indebtedness. And I know this line has kind of gotten him in trouble. Well, I think. But he says, I'm just like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones, and the British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. You know, that he's grouped these people together, especially if some of them are fictional. A lot of these songs were sort of stream of consciousness. And it's these are just names that came up. And he didn't go back and think, is this going to be politically correct? Or, you know... It's going to be a problem that I'm claiming that all people are in me and I in them. Well, hello. <laughs> I mean, this is what all artists have claimed from the dawn of time. I mean, that's what that's what art does. It draws on the universal human condition and makes us all one. That's why it's val- That's why it's valuable. So exactly, people who have problems with that. You know, I think are a bit confused. Something else Emerson says, um, it's kind of going back to my point of how Dylan has ruined most music for me. Now, literature, philosophy, and thought are Shakespeareized. His mind is the horizon beyond which, at present, we do not see. Our ears are educated to music by his rhythm. Yeah, he sets the rhythm. You know, he's kind of the atmosphere in which everyone else is breathing. Yes. I'm really obsessed with listening to, listening and reading interviews with musicians, and uh, there's absolutely nobody who basically doesn't name Bob Dylan as their influence, main influence. Some might uh, deny it, but there's no way. I know. Here's another good line. He, this is from Emerson, he, Shakespeare, is inconceivably wise. The others, conceivably. Yes. Isn't that great? Emerson keeps going. A good reader can, in a sort, nestle into Plato's brain and think from thence, but not into Shakespeare's. Yes. We are still out of doors. For executive faculty for creation, Shakespeare is unique. So that's what I mean. Like other musicians and other writers, I really love. But I can can see what they're doing. Wow, that that was an amazing trick, but I can I can piece it together. I can yes. see the mechanics. I, I know the where stitches. this I can see the stitches. I know where this came from. Not to say that I could do it. Uh-huh. I'm just saying, yeah. As a mechanical maneuver, I can kind of get it. Yeah. Things that Shakespeare does, I think. Where did that come from? Yeah. Same with Dylan. You know, you think Absolutely. this is not. Um. We have any, can we tie this down to an example? It's quite difficult because you just go listen to him for a few hours and <laughs> you'll get what we mean. But I mean, oh. your, your current favorite song by him is Dark Eyes. This is, this is an example of, it's a song that nobody knows. Nobody really listens to. It was on an album that kind of sank critically and commercially. Yes. 
But it's not just about the lyrics. I mean, no, I almost kind of don't not. want you to read the lyrics because they'll just fall flat, as as Dylan himself would say, without the yes, without the music. But as soon as you start listening to the song, you think, oh, this is one of those songs that came from somewhere else or has always existed. The music fairyland that only the greatest artist. Yeah, <laughs> um, it has this kind of eternal. There are some songs like that that seem permanent. Oh yeah. Without origin, sui generis, you know? You know what? Bob Dylan's even said it himself. There are some songs um, from, especially from the 60s, where he used to be, he used to cram a lot of strange, esoteric, and but also very beautiful, lyrical, very lyrical, <laughs> lyrical, just very poetic, long songs. And he doesn't, he can't say where those songs came from now. He really doesn't know, and he can't make yeah. them anymore. He makes different songs that are amazing in other ways, but he himself doesn't know. He evoked the muse in his Nobel lecture. You know, he's acknowledging mm -hmm. that they, it's in some ways gifts, that they're gifts that he receives, which I think is hum kind of humble acknowledgement. It is, yeah. I think um, one thing that must make great artists great too is that they acknowledge that they fall short in some way and that they, that they do need that grace from some other place. You know what I mean? Wherever amazing songs come from, they can only go so far and then they have to be open and pay attention and hope that yeah. magic hits sometimes. Well, in Self-Reliance, another Emerson essay, you can tell I've been reading Emerson a lot. He Emerson talks about this hypothetical young man who has just finished his schooling and attempts all these different ventures, business, art, law, and kind of fails at this and fails at that. And... Um, can often become discouraged by these failures and the people around him can often look at him as a kind of wastrel or yeah, large scale failure. But Emerson, Emerson's counsel to this person is to not worry. Emerson says, you have not one chance, but a hundred chances. Hmm. And I always think of people like Bob Dylan when I, when I think of this, because Dylan, how many songs has he written? Thousands and thousands. Yeah. So it, he seems to be the kind of person that when he writes a bad song, just kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, well, try again. I have more chances. I'll just keep trying. Yes. There's this um, kind of creative... It's not a theory, really. I don't think Bob Dylan... It's another thing Emerson says in Self-Reliance, that artists, just people in general, he says, should leave their theories like Joseph in the hands of the harlot and flee. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's great. <laughs> like, don't, don't make life too theoretical, because you will lose something organic and spontaneous. Yes. You know, you just do what you do, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't, and you can't always explain why. Mm. Theories, all these post-talk explanations. Yeah, okay, one, I... one more Emerson quote. Yeah. He says in Self-Reliance, I would write above the doorpost whim as a kind of motto, whim. Yeah. That this is the, should be the guiding metaphor of our lives, whim. Hmm. But I really, which I really like. You know, this this attracts me for now, so I'll follow it. And when it stops, I'll stop and pursue this other lead. Kind of Dylan flitting from genre to genre. Yeah. And then Emerson says, well, I hope at the end of the day that it would be better than whim, but we cannot spend the day in explanation, which I really love. <laughs> He's like, it would be great if we could figure it out on some kind of grander scale, but we have busy work to do and we can't theorize all day. Mm. But I just think I love this attitude of, and I see it reflected in Dylan, like, I'll just write a song and write another one, then write another one, then write another one, and there will be a critical mass of, of enough good ones will built be created, you know, eventually. Yeah, that's why I liked Emerson's uh, thing so much about range and extent. I think a lot of great artists have that in common. They are simply restless and prolific. You know what I mean? I Not totally do. 
they they don't have time not to create all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they just are so hungry. You could see in the output just how hungry they must be for creating something beautiful. I also want to say, like, in the spirit of Emerson and Dylan, they don't prescribe an artist should A or an artist should B. An artist right. is always X or always Y. Right. This is a large tent. There are many ways of being in this tent. There are some people who work slowly, work slowly, and they do three things their whole life, and they're those three things are masterpieces. Right. I know Leonard Cohen was an extremely <clears throat> slow writer, but I happen to I have I still even in those cases I have the suspicion that you know Zimborska going back to Zimborska, an interviewer once asked her why do you have so few published poems, and she said because I have a waste paper basket. Yeah. So there, even though in those cases I suspect that there is still an element of this profligate, unbounded, unfiltered making. Right. And some people are okay with letting the world see their waste paper basket and others aren't. Yeah. And it's not like we dismiss Bob Dylan based on one bad song. <laughs> right. When he has hundreds of good ones. <laughs> I always tell people that some of his songs I like so much that I literally don't listen to them. I only listen to them on extremely special occasions. Like when my children were born, um, when I spent some time with them in the hospital, um, or once mm -hmm. when we were riding through Tuscany in Italy, um, that seemed like a good time to listen to <laughs> Mr. Tambourine Man. They are not, they're not background music at all. Yes, I feel that way about Mr. Tambourine Man. I, I've listened to it maybe a thousand times, but... I go out of my way to not listen to it because it's, mm. <laughs> I feel like Moses, I have to take off my shoes if I'm going to turn yes. that song on and like, yes. you know, give it I know, due I, reverence. I hear those first, <laughs> that D chord and I'm like, oh no, here it goes. <laughs> yeah. I have to like turn it off. It's kind of crazy. And ever since I've kind of started playing the guitar, my first thought of, uh, thought of course was, okay, I have to learn my favorite song, Mr. Tambourine Man. And it was surprisingly easy. And I looked into all these Bob Dylan songs, and he uses so few chords. Yeah, three chord songs. It's insane. Over and over again. And that just further deepened my love for him, because I realized what genius songs he's writing so, with such few ingredients. Well, can we do a little bit better of a job yes. at <laughs> pinpointing the specialness? Because he writes three chord songs like any schlock pop writer would use this right. is not new that's not original he's stealing lyrics from poets and writers mm -hmm. um why are his songs so much better well if they're not that much different they're not that much different from other people's songs yes. like on paper in theory and yet there's this layer of magic there's many ingredients but we could talk about his voice yeah, it's just like describing a voice, like describing music. <laughs> so can, well, can, can it be described? I have a few. There's a... Just go listen to it, you know, early, middle, and late. Yeah, there's uh, David Bowie, of course, saying that Bob Dylan's voice is like sand and glue. <laughs> sand and glue? Yeah. <laughs> I kind of love that. Mm. It's not just coarse, but it also has this... <laughs> Sticky quality, <laughs> it's hard to describe, but that just, that you get stuck to. <laughs> well, um, he was 20, when he recorded Mr. Tambourine Man, he was 24-ish, I think. Yeah. Very John Keats-esque. 
24 years old, writing a kind of ode to a, night, ode to a nightingale song. You listen to the tone of the voice, the raspiness. It sounds aged. This, oh, is, yeah. this is, you know, an influence, obviously, of Woody Guthrie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Woody he, Guthrie does not... He sounds pretty Dylan tame sounds, compared to Bob Dylan. Dylan sounds even more ancient. Oh, yeah. So he comes... At the beginning of his career, he comes onto the scene with an aura of ancient experience and wisdom and hard-earned experience. All in the voice. The raspiness. Yes. Of the voice. And it's not just the, that it sounds old, but I personally, all, my, some of my, well, all of my favorite singers don't necessarily have a conventionally beautiful voice. And well, I think one of the reasons I love that, especially with Bob Dylan, is because they have something within them that they want to express so badly that they don't care how it comes out almost. So we could contrast this ancient sound to uh, youthful. He also sounds very young. He does, yeah. So maybe this is part of the magic that there's this oxymoron in the voice, mm. uh, agedness and un- unabashed youth. You know, you listen to some of those early songs and quite nasally and um, exuberant and naive. Mm-hmm. So you get both. You get the whole human experience. You can you can tell that this is a guy in his twenties, mm-hmm. his early twenties. Yeah, but it kind of sounds like you know someone who's been around since the dawn of time. That must be a part of it. That it must be, yeah. That there's a paradoxical agedness mixed with youth. Right. And I maybe I haven't listened to enough covers of Bob Dylan, but I don't think I've ever heard one that is as good as Bob Dylan's original song. I mean, if you take something like Imagine Mr. Tambourine Man with like this beautiful many covers honey of voice, you know what I mean? Many covers of that, yeah. Uh, it's It's not the same. You need the beauty offset by that rough voice. Yeah, there there needs to be a kind of rawness. There does, yeah. Um, a kind of yeast, a kind of ferment or mold or bacteria, some kind of grit. It was D- yes, Bowie's word. Grit, exactly. Uh, to make the thing, you know, to make it rise, to give it texture. And I always feel like when I listen to him, his voice sounds like it's part of the same landscape as the same course landscape as his songs mm. the images in his songs this is the thing he's born with this can't be given or mm. I mean, you can you can get voice lessons of course but you're <laughs> you're born sounding a certain way within a, a narrow range that you can't really do much about so it's luck part of this is just luck no doubt about that oh there's this um amazing movie inside Lou and davis is that what it's called <laughs> Being <laughs> so bad at no, right. Okay, inside Lewin Davis. Yeah. Oh, it's it's such a good movie. The if you love Bob Dylan, the ending will really at least blew my mind. Well, Lewin Davis is a folk singer, and he's trying to make it, and he is trying so hard. He's playing at all these um, bars, and he's just not having any success at all. While other people. Some of his well, friends are... And he's good. And he's good, yes. He's got a great voice. He's written some great songs. It, it, so he's technically got all the ingredients. You could look at him and be like, okay, he has everything that it would take to become a successful musician to write some really beautiful songs. Yeah. And he does write beautiful songs, but then at the end, um, we kind of see on the side Bob Dylan 
gets on the stage. You see in the background. We're spoiling in it now. Background. We're doing a horrible uh, thing because we it, are doing it comes into thing. the movie as a like, wonderful surprise. You, you see Dylan kind of mostly in silhouette in the back. And then you hear as kind of background music Dylan's voice. Mm-hmm. And it immediately, as Bob Dylan songs do... Just blow your mind. <laughs> stratospheric. There's a stratospheric difference. Your heart immediately clenches. <laughs> and there is such, like, just a fundamental difference between Bob Dylan's music and this poor guy. <laughs> Dylan Davis sounds like a person who has a lot of talent, who has mm. practiced very well and makes beautiful music. But Bob Dylan sounds like a, an ancient bard has stepped out of the fog and is singing you an ancient song that was given to him by space the gods. <laughs> We're really overpraising him, but can can he be overpraised? No, he's, no. I'm reminded of um we talk about Krishna, you know, Krishna being inconceivable. <laughs> We're I don't think as much as we try to put language to this that it can be there's always something mystical about this, you know. Um I know it's like it's not going to be it's what separates craft from art. You can describe a good quilt, what makes a good quilt. You can describe what makes a good pair of shoes. They have a techne. You know, mm. they're technical requirements. Yeah. Great art has no techne. It yeah. has no... There's no checklist. It's like it's like a face. Some faces, especially nowadays, you can have all the right ingredients, all the right, you know, plastic surgery additions. Mm, it's extra but, monstrous. But there is no, like, light or charm. And then you have... So, yeah. And then there's these faces that show up and, you know, instantly change your life. Especially you mean about- my, 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 <laughs> my. I don't necessarily mean like romantically even, but, you know, like what's charisma? Well, it's more than you, – you're, you're making a true point. I totally get it. But it, it's more than – I mean, Lou and, Dave, Lou and Davis had charisma, you know. No, I'm not saying now Bob Dylan has charisma. I'm saying like just speaking now of faces, for example. Well, there's no – yeah, just like in a face – this is the last thing I'll say. I have to say, there's no ingredient in a Bob Dylan song that you can point to and say, this is what makes it so much better. Right. There's no ingredient. It's not just the lyrics. It's not the music. It's not the voice. All of those ingredients go into this alchemical process. It's like compost. You know, they're all in there, but something happens in that compost bin. They're transmogrified into some new element. And we don't know that process. We don't know how to describe it. We don't know what it is. Mm. The final product is mystical somehow. And it's unfair to say that this is all complete chance because he opens himself up for that chance, right? I would say, you know... Through hard work. It's got to be lots of perspiration, as as uh, what's-his-face would say. Uh, it's not quite 99% perspiration. This is Edison's... I don't know if mm. this is apocryphal, but 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. There's, I think the, that ratio... Is debatable, but yeah. <laughs> certainly lots of hard work too. Yeah, but lots of luck and lots of trial and error and lots of gifting from Apollo and his muses. Mm. Um, what are your five favorite Bob Dylan songs? This is how we'll end. Oh, five. Okay. Well, oh, it's, Mr- it's a horrible question because yeah. he's one of those. It's like he's written thousands of songs, and he's one of those artists. This is another reason why he's so good because. You never get to the end of him. If you go through mm-hmm. his entire catalog, by the time you get to the very end, 
the beginning happened so long ago that you're excited. It's like all new again. <laughs> so you, you never like, get tired of listening to him because there is so much to listen to. I know. It's like even within Hamlet, what are your five favorite lines from yeah, Hamlet, right? Ridiculous. Don't. So anyway. Um, yes. Your current five favorite. Are you <laughs> so Mr. Tambourine Man, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Dark Eyes. One Too Many Mornings. Um I love Spanish boots of Spanish leather. Um, Desolation Row. What about one or two hidden gems? Dark Eyes is a hidden gem, but songs of his you really like that aren't going to make... If you Google like Best Dylan songs, there's going to be some that aren't on there. I really love Black Rider from That's a new his one, latest right? album, yeah. Buckets of Rain. <laughs> Idiot Wind. Buckets of Rain is a good song. Terrible. What a terrible thing we did to ourselves. <laughs> yeah, my favorites would be Mr. Tambourine Man, It Ain't Me Babe, Idiot Wind. Shelter from the Storm. Yeah, that's a good one. Maybe <laughs> maybe Buckets of Rain and Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, definitely. Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, without any doubt, gets into the top five. Blood on the Tracks, 1975. Good case to be made that that's the best album of all time. Tangled Up in Blue, Shelter from the Storm, Simple Twist of Fate, Idiot Wind, Buckets of Rain, If You See Her Say Hello. I mean, so many great songs on it. I prefer, it's a great album. I think the New York sessions, the New York recordings that you can get, you know, the bootleg editions are better. They're softer more gentle, more lyrical, more beautiful. I like the ones they recorded in Minnesota as well. They're slightly kind of more aggressive and whinier, but um, I like having both too. That's the thing. We can celebrate the fact that both of these versions of this masterpiece album exist. A couple hidden gems. I like the song from the Tempest album, Long and Wasted Years. Mm. I like the song Early Dylan, My Back Pages. Yeah, It's a beautiful song. And... Um, I like uh, Not Dark Yet. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful song. So beautiful. And those gospel songs I really like. like um, When He Returns. When He Returns is a beautiful song. And mm -hmm. Precious Angel, I think, is really gorgeous, too. Okay, we've bored everyone. Final words? Yes, I actually have the perfect thing for the final word. <laughs> it should be good. Um, in an interview, a young Bob Dylan said, when it comes to messages in his songs... He kind of scoffed at the interviewer a little bit. Wait, um, th what was the question? Uh, well, the interviewer said, so uh, your songs are supposed to have messages. He's like, they are. <laughs> That's so great. She's like, he's like, where'd you hear that? He's like, I don't know. I read it in a magazine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so he kind of laughed with her. He wasn't, he was being nice. But anyway, um, he said, well, um, I think every song ends with I hope you make it why do you like that it's such a hopeful and um, loving idea that and an, and an acknowledgement that you know life is hard and but, but <laughs> I hope you get through it hope, with beauty you know? yeah I hope you make it um, that, I mean maybe that's the point of all art you want to give somebody one more thing that might help them make it through this day the next few years and decades mm. want to be a part of that, making it through. Hope you make it. It's very affirmative. Yeah, and it's but not, not naively so. 
Yeah, and it doesn't even necessarily feel like I hope this song helps you make it through. But yeah. just in general, right? It's, yeah. We're in this together. I like that a lot. And it's very intimate and communal, you know? It, exactly. That's the communal. <laughs> so, if you're listening to this, we hope you make it. <laughs> the end? Yeah. <laughs>